the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hey friends, welcome to The Common Good here on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. One of the biggest churches in the world, and we've talked about them multiple times, Hillsong out of Australia, but Hillsong is literally a worldwide movement, right? There's Hillsongs across the United States, uh, in England, all sorts of different places. Uh, Hillsong was started by Brian Houston, Brian and his wife, Bobby Houston. They are the ones who started Hillsong in Australia and still up until the other day, still lead Hillsong. And now Hillsong has been ravaged by a bunch of um, scandals. I, I was trying yeah. to look at a different world, but I think the word is legitimately scandals. You think of Carl Lentz at Hillsong, New York, uh, and you think about the stuff coming out of Australia. Well, just the other day, Brian Houston on Sunday in a videoed message to their church uh, he announced that he is stepping aside as global senior pastor, telling worshipers uh, at their headquarters that he would be taking a leave of absence from the church until the end of this year, citing mm. a decision by Hillsong Board and external legal counsel. Uh, he said best practice dictates that he be absent uh, himself completely from church leadership as he is actually facing trial mm. for allegedly failing to report sexual abuse. It's oh, this whole man. trial is likely to be drawn out and take up most of 2022. Uh, and so that was uh, his um, announcement. Uh, sadly, when you start reading what the sexual abuse was that he is allegedly not, did not uh, share, it was um, from his dad, his late father, Frank Houston, uh, who indecently assaulted a young male in 1970. And it said uh, Brian Houston knew this as early as 1999 and failed to disclose it, quote, without reasonable excuse. And so Houston has pled not guilty. So we'll see where this plays. But Aubrey, the big news right now is in this line of they've had pastor after pastor step down at many of the different Hillsongs right, under right. a cloud of scandal and suspicion. Right. And now for the head guy to step away, uh, uh, there's a larger point I want to make, but let me just throw this to you. It's just jarring, isn't it? Mm, yeah, it is. It's so jarring. And, you know, in one sense, you like my mind always goes to two places. One, it seems like over the past several years, like, like God has been cleaning house. It, mm -hmm, the more stories mm -hmm. you hear, the more you're like, whoa, the spirit of God is not letting some things go uh, is hidden anymore. Simultaneously, you kind of go, whoa, I better. Ch I mean, I've said this before on the show and it sounds silly, but I actually mean it like you better check yourself before you wreck yourself. If you're in church <laughs> leadership, like mm -hmm. this is a massively influential church and um it's jarring. It's devastating. It's a little shocking. It's probably the right move for him to step away for a time mm -hmm. for the sake of the church. Um, but goodness gracious to hear another story. Now, it, you know, I, I guess we don't need to necessarily unpack this versus right, other right. 
other allegations of other pastors. Right. There's certainly a complicated nature of this being a dad, this happening in the seventies. How old was he when, and, you know, there's, there's some, there's some things to think about there. Mm-hmm. Um, but still you're just like, Oh man, this is another leader who hid some things and it just does not go well to do that. Yeah. He is uh, to call Hillsong a church, I think is, uh, is an understatement, right? It's a movement. It's a denomination. It's a whatever else you want to call it. But Aubrey, uh, yeah, we could unpack this one and this, but I think there's a more important point for the rest of us to wrestle with. Like, uh, we, uh, it, you may not even know it out there, but you've probably been touched. If you go to an evangelical church, you've been, yeah. or you listen to K Love or whatever else it might be, you've been touched by Hillsong, right? right? Like by, uh, that's kind of how they made their bones was around their music, their worship ministry. Uh, but Aubrey, this kind of thing causes great disillusionment, disillusionment for people, whether it yeah. be at a huge church like this, or we've said this a million times on the show. We see these things in small churches all the time as well. Yeah. This isn't a big church, small church thing. Uh, and it reminds me again, Aubrey, of the danger of putting our hope in, uh, leaders. But it also reminds me of the danger of even putting our hope in churches. Like uh, mm. I've put my hope in this church or even the church made up of fallen people. These kind of things remind us of that. And when we put our hope in churches, when we put our hope in dynamic leaders, uh, then when they go down, it becomes easy for us to go down, for us right, to, for right. our faith to crumble, for us to become really uh, disillusioned. Uh, so I want to have that bigger conversation about how do we have our hope and our security and all of this in the right spot. And obviously, when I say that, what I mean is in Jesus, who's the same yesterday, today yes. and forever. Right. No scandal of Jesus's is going to come out tomorrow and right. throw us. Amen. Uh, and, and we all say that. But how, Aubrey, do we actually do that when we've been influenced by a pastor, a church, a speaker or whoever else it might be? I mean, I, uh, it's like our constant. I, I do think this is the constant sort of battle in all of our souls for the object of our worship mm-hmm. is, okay, we can't. And I think we talked about this yesterday on the show, Brian, like you cannot exchange this powerful leader, this amazing church for the worship of God. And you can find joy and community and giftedness and growth and all these wonderful things in those places from those people. But it's like this continual, I guess, just work of the Holy Spirit and discipline and letting go of our idolatry to say, but they're not God. And so Mm. when they're shaken, my faith is not shaken because I know who Jesus is. I'm going to keep looking to Jesus who never changes and who is steadfast and true and who, like you said, does not have scandal. But it's it's like we need these reminders somehow again and again and again that we are so bent on worshiping so many other things, but God, even Christians. And um, I, I don't know, we just have to like not let the frailty, the sinfulness of man surprise us mm. and shake us where our faith is damaged by it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I that It's verse, hard I, though. I mean, it's, it's so it's hard. hard. It's yeah. so hard. And, and I do feel like, Sometimes I wish that we didn't keep doing these stories, but it feels important because it pounds home the fact again, whether it's, you know, this local church or this global church or whatever else it might be. Some people yeah. have even asked me, like, why do you guys do those stories? Doesn't that just damage the church? And I think, no, it, it, the goal is to get our minds and our eyes in the right spot. Yeah, it is to say, OK, where is it actually uh, that my worship is, that my security is. And what does it mean that Jesus is still sovereign over the church and he is still the same 
yesterday, today, and forever. I, yeah. I think it changes a lot, and, and we get this wrong if we don't actually think it through. And so wanted to bring up that story, a major story in the church world, because Hillsong is such an influential church. Brian Houston stepping aside as the global senior pastor. We'll see who fills that leadership void and if right. Hillsong looks any different in the future going forward. Well, coming up next, uh, a, uh, a a journalist came out on um, on a show the other day and said that she is done with COVID. And there's hmm. been a lot of pushback about that. And then there was an interesting poll out about COVID that I want to talk about. Basically, Arbor, I want to ask this question. Can we be done with COVID? Can we even make that decision? We're going to discuss COVID next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. There was an interview a, a given the other day by Barry Weiss. Barry Weiss uh, is a former New York Times journalist, had kind of a outspoken departure from the paper. Uh, she talked about being uh, bullied at The New York Times and all this stuff. But she was on Real Time with Bill Maher the other day. Uh, and she said something about COVID uh, that really kind of fired people up on either side. So I want to tell you it. Okay. Get your feel for it. And then I want to share a, um, a, a survey a, uh, that I just saw the other day that I think is really interesting as we continue to wrestle with where should we be at with COVID right now? Like, right, where are we all at right now? She said this on Bill Maher's show. She said, we were told. You get the vaccine, you get the vaccine and you get back to normal, she said. And we haven't gotten back to normal. And in fact, people are killing themselves. They're mm. anxious, they're depressed, they're lonely. That is why we need to end it more than any inconvenience that it's been to the rest of us. And then uh, in the midst of people really pushing back against her, she doubled down on her Twitter account the other day. Basically, no, it's time. Mm. It's time. And now uh, I'm reading from a CNN op-ed uh, that called this a slap in the face to healthcare workers. But mm. Aubrey, uh, and understanding that you are just getting out of having COVID. So right. this is my family, myself and my family have never had it. Right. So we're still kind of speaking of this theoretically. Um, and you've been very clear that this, you know, you're vaccinated, you're boosted, all this stuff. And it yep. was no joke. But right. it was uh, no obviously joke. you didn't end up in the hospital or anything. Right. Praise uh, God. Aubrey, uh, this is her, her, Barry Weiss's comments have created a bit of a firestorm. Sure. I tend, I, I don't think I'd say it as strongly as she did, but I tend to, I'm starting to agree with her sentiment here. Mm. And I wonder, I'm going to read a survey. Well, I'll just read the survey now. Okay. Uh, this survey at a Monmouth University in New Jersey uh, said this, seven in 10 Americans agree with the sentiment that, quote, it's time we accept that COVID is here to stay and we just need to get on with our lives. Mm. So there seems to be surveys behind this and yeah. uh, uh, people uh, say that's 78% of those who report having gotten COVID, but also 65% of those who say they've not been infected are saying this. Uh, and the survey continues to go on and mm. on. So she basically said it's time to move on. It's an endemic, as you and I have talked about. Right. Uh, the ramifications of keeping stuff shut down or mass or whatever are problematic. But this larger survey of Monmouth is kind of finding that most Americans tend to agree with her, even though on social media she is getting roasted. Sure. Uh, so as somebody who's had this, as yeah. somebody with kids in school and all sorts of other stuff, 
How are you processing it? And then I want to ask kind of a larger question of kind of what's our role as American citizens right now where people are all over the place. But just how are you processing kind of this question? I would also add to that list, like I'm also someone who lost someone, well, two people very close to me from COVID. One was a 25-year-old man, one was my mother-in-law. So I, you know, I think, I think unfortunately the language is not right. Like, I, because I do think there's a difference between acceptance and denial and to accept that COVID is just part of life now, it's an endemic is where we need to be. But just to say I'm done with COVID. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, that just sort of feels like denial. It really um, diminishes, I think, a lot of people's pain that they've experienced the past two years. I actually think it undermines what she's talking about, which is the depression, the loneliness, the anxiety, the suicidal like tendencies that we're seeing. We need to actually, we can't just ignore COVID. We need to address the pain that it's caused. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so I, I guess I just wish she would have said it a different way. Like, just to say like, well, I'm done with COVID. Well, great. Most of the world isn't. And mm. so that that's unrealistic. It's it's a little uh, Pollyanna-ish, I think. And a, a better way to say it, I think, is I am so tired of dealing with COVID. I am so sick of it. We all are. We're so burnt out from talking about COVID. How can we now begin to like rebuild what we've lost or think about things in a new way or or even like healthily talk about the pain that COVID has caused so that we can move forward. I think that's a better way to say what she's, what I think she's trying to say. Um, but just to say like, I'm done. It, it really is. I think it's a slap in the face, not just to the, the healthcare workers, but also to people who have been impacted by this thing. Yeah. Yeah. So what's the, what's our posture towards? Cause I think what she's also saying is, uh, we need to be acting differently now than we have been, right? Mm. So I don't want to put words in her mouth, sure, in her mouth sure. but things about masks of people who've been vaccinated or, you know, mm, things yeah. still being shut down, mandates. And we know we've yeah. talked about this many times. We live in a state that's very different from we do. We a lot do. of other states. And so yeah. this is also somewhat regional um, because it is one thing to say we need to be um, we need to be uh compassionate. We need to remember that there's people on the other side. But what about just the idea of, listen, I kind of believe that we need to get kids out of masks in schools, or we need to stop having them wear masks when they're playing basketball, or we need to, if they're vaccinated, they can, you know, all these different kind of things. I guess I'm asking, how do we talk to the people who are still like, you know what? Uh, I disagree with you. I disagree with Barry Weiss. I think we're in the middle of a pandemic. Right, and we need to right. be taking every precaution right now. How do we live in society together, I suppose, is the question I'm asking. Mm. I, I would like to hear your answer about that, Brian, because I know you're even maybe a little further along than I am with like, mm-hmm. you're you're like, you're done with masks. I'm not meaning you, you would wear them to I respect still wear them. people. Right, right, yeah, right. that's I'm not saying that. I'm just saying like emotionally, you're kind of like, look, get the kids out. Like enough is enough. So I would love to hear from your perspective how we do this. Yeah, I I think my biggest, let me just clarify a little bit. I think my biggest issue is there feels like there's very little conversation in those who are making the the ultimate decisions. I hear at least very little conversation of here's the next step. Yeah. Here's when this happens. Yeah. Here's when, and, and I start going, listen, I need a light at the end of the tunnel here when it comes to some of these mediations that I think are going too far, particularly in our state. So I need you to hear, I need to hear from the governor, from Dr. Fauci, whatever. This is when masks are gone. 
this is what, and maybe they can't, or I'd like them to get up and say, we don't know the answer to that, but here's how we're going about that. Uh, for me, Aubrey, I still think as Christians, I think our faith plays very much into this. Um, I think we have to show compassion. That doesn't mean I'm, I'm mm. not the believer that to love your neighbor means that you take you take on everything everybody else says we should yeah, be doing without yeah. any pushback. Yeah. But I do think that we have to be compassionate. I don't think it should be the Christians out there who are being the jerks about this. Yeah. Who are being uncompassionate, who are being unloving to people who have genuine fear. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't mean I have to allow everybody else to tell me exactly what I should be doing. But I think we as Christians, and so that's kind of where I'm at now. Yeah. You know what? I'm going to have my opinions and where I can exercise them, I will. But you know what? When I'm around people who feel this way, I'm going to lovingly do this. It's becoming an increasingly hard line to walk because do I feel the same way around people who are like, nope, I'm not going to ever take any precautions. Does that mean I stop showing any precaution? Probably not. And so I don't think there's a good answer. I do find that poll from Monmouth really interesting because I think if you watch the news or read social media, you think – the majority of the country feels one way. And then you read actual polls and you're like, oh, most people are like, it's time to move on. It's time to not move right. on in a in a flippant way. Right. But it's the endemic. It's time to move towards our next steps. I don't know the right answer, but I do mm-hmm. know uh, that I, I would like to hear that conversation happening at the at the level of the people who are making the decisions. <laughs> like, yeah, I, th- I think, Brian, I know we're running out of time here, but I agree with you that it would be helpful to go, OK, we know our kids won't have masks coming next fall. We're going to get mm-hmm. through the school year. We feel like we at least got to do that. But in the fall, this is our goal. Like or yep. just whatever that conversation is, some like next step plan would be helpful. That's right. That's right. So it's the question that will hang over us, I think, for as long as we do this show. Yeah, (laughs) you're right, Brian. It's what it means that it's an endemic, as we've talked about. All right, Aubrey, we're going to do something next uh, from our friend Ian Simpkins. He had a Twitter, a Facebook post the other day. Uh, that I would like to discuss and uh, kind of get us a a off the ra- uh, uh, it's going to cause us to jump in about all right all I'm ready we, I'm ready all we meant as Christians is our ultimate goal to be colorblind that's going to be the conversation next year on the Common Good AM 1160 hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us. I'm going to put another big one on our laps here to kind of discuss here. And it got me thinking from a Facebook post from our old friend, my old co-host, Ian Simpkins. He made a Facebook post today that is basically an article. It's that long. So I'm just going to read the first line. And I want you to talk about it. And then we've got a bunch of other people who have weighed in uh, through tweets and articles and stuff that I think are helpful. Ian just wrote this. The, the kind of the premise of his post was this. Colorblindness is not the goal. Colorblindness is not the goal. Uh, Carlos Rodriguez, yeah. founder of the Happy Nonprofit, he wrote this at one time. He said, I see your color and I honor you. I value your input. I will be educated about your lived experiences. I will work against racism that harms you. You are beautiful. Tell me how to do better. Mm. Uh, this idea. Uh, so let me back it up this way, Aubrey. I do think um, a lot of times when we talk about unity in the church, 
when we talk about um, inner uh, multicultural church, when we talk about the idea that that all cultures, all races, all nationalities are going to be in God's throne room for eternity, the book of Revelation, right? When we do this, we then often, I probably have made this point in my life years ago at some point from a pulpit or somewhere, uh, we then therefore make this leap. So therefore, because we were all created in the image of God, we need to get past seeing color. Mm. We need to get past seeing ethnicity, Mm. race, whatever else it would be. We need to get past that and see us all as the same. You could see where that becomes the conclusion. And you can also see where that's done out of a, uh, out of good intention. Sure. Right? Sure. But Aubrey, a lot of people who know a lot better than I have written a lot. And this is what Ian's touching on. The colorblindness is not at all the goal. Absolutely not. That is not yeah. the goal. Help. I know you've done a lot of thinking and yeah. reading about this. Help unpack that for people who through great intentions have kind of said we uh, as Christians are to be colorblind. Yeah. And and I will say it. it ha- Kevin and I in our whole church have done a lot of work on this. So right. I know that not everybody's at this same place in their journey. But I would say when like when we when we look scripturally, what we do see, especially in the vision of revelation of every tribe, tongue, nation worshiping together, they're not all the same. And that's actually really, really good and mm. really, really beautiful because it shows us the manifold glory of God. Like when we say that we were created in the image of God, what we do mean, what scripture actually means is every tribe, every tongue, every mm. nation. And all of us, especially when we're united together, better display God's manifold glory, his wisdom, where if we ignore those differences, we actually don't get to experience this beautiful imagination that God has. And so I would just say biblically, like, there's that. Then anecdotally and relationally, what we have found in time is, and this is from our brothers and sisters of color, mm-hmm. that it actually really dishonors them. It really um, undermines their ethnic background, their experience of racism, their um, beautiful identities as people of color to say, I don't see your color. Because what you're saying is, I don't see you. I don't mm. see your experiences. I don't see the harm that's been done to you because of the color of your skin. I don't see how God has created you. And I, Brian, I, I think you're exactly right. I think colorblindness was sort of meant to be the quote unquote, like right way of thinking about race. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, colorblindness came from a lot of white people who are in places of privilege and power, came from a lot of bias and, and didn't honor the stories, the struggles and the beauty of our brothers and sisters of colors. And so it's counterproductive in a way to say, I don't see race because in one sense it, um, yeah, it just ignores a lot of pain, let's yeah. be honest. Yeah. And in yeah. fact, um, in one sense, saying that you're colorblind can promote racism or actually be a form of racism. What you need, what we all need to learn to do, and I include myself in this, is to begin embrace everyone of different skin colors, ethnicities, backgrounds, hear their stories, learn from them honor that. And then that begins to actually bring the unity that we want to see. The goal is, you, Brian, you've said this on the show, unity, not uniformity. That's right. That's right. Uh, I Man, that's really well put. And um, this idea of colorblindness, like you said, I think comes from an, a desire to 
uh, like have that unity to mm-hmm. not have racism in the church. I'm just thinking about the church right now uh, to treat everybody equally. But like you said, I'm reading out of the Atlantic sociologists. This was from a couple years ago, have basically uh, pushed back. And they basically said this idea of colorblindness, like you just said, actually ends up uh, subtly promoting racism right, and this right. and that. But uh, Aubrey, let, let me jump onto something that you said and have you unpack it a little bit. Sure. More. Th- then what is actually the goal then? Okay, because colorblindness, I think that that language came out of a goal, at least the churches I've been a part of where that language has been used. I've always seen it as the goal to say, hey, we're leveling the ground for everybody. Right. We're all together. We're all so obviously your background's different than mine. But in Christ, we are just the same. Okay, we are the same. Uh, So what would you suggest or what at your church? How do you Mm -hmm. speak of it? What should the goal be? How do we do this? Uh, well and honoring with a picture of what's going to happen in the book of Revelation for all of eternity. Yeah. And I, I, this is a very hard discussion for people. And mm-hmm. I think part of the reason it's a hard discussion for people is because there's, um, there's a lot of lies that the enemy has, have used to spread, um, that seem right, but are actually really, really, really evil. There's a lot of strongholds at work when it comes to conversation around race. But I, I would say we have to begin with, and I'm, I'm going to speak to just white people for a second. And I think mm-hmm. that's what I just said is actually part of what we need to begin to do. It is okay to use language like white people, black mm-hmm. people. Like it is okay to begin using language like that to identify certain populations of people. Now, there, okay. Anyway, there's a whole long conversation that we right. don't need to talk about now, but even about whiteness, like for white people to begin to know their actual identity. So for me, I've done a lot of work to find that like I'm from a Welsh, Scotch, Irish and Welsh background. Mm. So rather than defining myself as white, I can define myself from my ethnicity rather than this like terminology. But that's a different conversation. I'm getting us confused. Let me go back to what I was saying. (laughs) I I think we have to stop refusing to have the conversation. Mm. So it is so important for us, you know, white folks, especially. Sometimes I think when we we want to say we're colorblind, we don't see race, that's actually a refusal to have some really hard conversations. Mm. So it starts with the emotional intelligence, the patience and the listening skills to listen to stories from your brothers and your sisters of color and not arguing checking yourself when your your heart starts to race and your blood starts to boil and just mm. going okay lord who this is triggering some stuff in me what is that about and being curious even about your own anger your own defensiveness your own um sort of reaction that can be very visceral in this conversation begin to surrender that to god and ask why like yeah. what idolatry is being pushed on what what Uh, is being threatened in you that makes this conversation so hard. Mm. And then I, I, we have to spend so much time listening. And again, I'm talking to the white people here, so much time listening to our brothers and sisters of color, because what we find is that they have pain that we have not even begun, begun to like understand, let Mm. alone just hear. Yeah. 
And so we have to have willing hearts that say like, your story is important to me. Your pain is important to me. And as your brother and sister in Christ, I'm going to carry this with you. And I'm not going to fight back with you. I'm not going to pretend. I'm not going to do something where I act like it's not true. In fact, I'm just going to listen. And then I, you know, then there are other things you can do. I mean, there are steps that you can take. You can begin to learn the history of your city and the segregation there. You begin to look at the authors that you're reading. And do you actually have enough authors of color in your book? your podcast, your, you know, whatever it is you consume, there are steps you can take, but we have to begin by getting our heart in a willing posture to confess our own sin and, um, and a willingness to listen and then check ourselves when we're feeling who that stuff is arising. Okay. Lord, what is that about? I knew you'd have some good words on that. Thanks for that. Let me end with Carlos Rodriguez. I, I touched on his tweet before. This is from last year. He said, I see no color is not the goal. I see your color and I honor you. I value your input. I will be educated about your lived experiences. I will work against the racism that harms you. You're beautiful. Tell me how to do better. And then he wrote, that's the goal. So a very hard conversation, but one that we want to, I know I want to get right in my life. You want to work to get right in your life. And we want to see churches increasingly lead the way here uh, in getting this conversation right. Well, coming up next, uh, International Holocaust Remembrance Day just took place. We're going to reflect on that as we continue here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. We're so glad that you're with us today. January 27th was International Holocaust Remembrance Day. And over on TikTok, a Holocaust survivor by the name of Lily Abert, she's 98 years old, she has become a TikTok, I mean, star with tens <laughs> of millions of followers by sharing the story of her experience in Auschwitz. It is emotional, to say the least, to hear some of her tale, but I would love to share some of... um some of her story and some of this, how she started getting on TikTok with our listeners. So let's go ahead and take a listen. I was really not sure that I, that I will stay alive. It is a miracle that I am here, but I promised myself how long I will be alive and how, what I will do in life. One thing is sure, I will tell my story. And the story she tells is hard to hear. When she arrived at Auschwitz, age 20, guards took away Lily's mother, her brother, and one of her sisters. In her worst nightmares, she couldn't imagine why. What really happened, in our darkest moment, we wouldn't think of that. It was not in our mind that something like that can happen. They were taken away to the gas chambers that very afternoon. Go. Hello, TikTok. Sharing her story nice with the TikTok day. audience Shabbat shalom. Have a nice was a mission day, Lily Shabbat and her 18-year-old great-grandson nice Dove started during the lockdown. So I said to my great-grandmother, if they can go viral for dancing, why can't we go viral for sharing these really important messages? I saw... And if you thought the horrors of the Holocaust might not be popular on a platform better known for cute kittens and dance-offs, you'd be wrong. 
Lily soon went viral with tens of millions of views. Oh, a dinner that was. People, young people, wanted to know more about Lily and her survival story. Brian, so this is incredible to me. In the middle of the the pandemic, her great grandson was like, "Look." These stories need to be shared. That's and right. TikTok is a place usually known for like cute kitten videos and dancing videos. But what if we share my great grandmother's story? And of mm. course, like I said before, it's grown to tens of millions of followers. And, you know, part of it is just, I mean, I'm going to cry talking about part of it is her whole family was put in the gas chamber the day they arrived at Auschwitz. Oh, my gosh. And so her talking about that and how they were treated, her talking about, you still see the, tattooed number on her arm in this mm. video because she's talking about how they were no longer human beings but just objects it is it is so powerful i mean yeah. i don't know other yeah. word for it so powerful to hear her story and i for one i'm so grateful that her great-grandson took to tiktok to do this because it's like she's 98 years old of course this whole generation is going and um, to have these stories is so, so, so essential for us. Yes. I think the question I'm asking, Brian, is, I mean, you know, you know that they're essential, but why? Like, why does it matter so much that we continue to remember and celebrate the lives of these survivors and all that they went through? Not celebrate what they went through, but honor what they went through. Right. I, I think... Uh, it's an important question because we like to whitewash the hard stuff, right? We don't want to have to dwell on yeah. it. But but those who – I'm going to butcher the sentence, but those who ignore history, right, are destined to repeat it. Like wow. how do yeah. we How do we make sure these things never happen again? It's to understand how they happened the first time. Uh, it's to understand what was at the heart of this because it only takes – we're already seeing it, Aubrey, but it only takes a generation, two generations, three generations yeah, right, to go – right. Did that really happen? Mm. Is that how it really happened? Mm. Were there more at play? Was there, and you start to go, uh, something as foundational and, uh, as the Holocaust, you start going, well, maybe, maybe yeah. it wasn't. And we see that with 9 11 and other things. And so that's why it's important. But to your point about honoring, um, these people deserve to be honored. Yeah. I mean, they, uh, they went through things that we will never go through right. and uh, deserve to be honored. And a third thing I would say, Aubrey, is that our kids just need to know what has happened in our world. I, yeah. I was telling you a little bit off air when my daughter, who's now a senior in high school, when she was in the sixth grade, I uh, went as a chaperone. Carrie and I used to try to chaperone everything and coach everything while our kids were younger, right? Like we're going to enjoy this while we can. Yeah. Uh, and so in the sixth grade, her entire sixth grade class went to the Holocaust Museum in, I believe it's in Skokie, okay. uh, the, wow. the, the Illinois Holocaust Museum. And, you know, you know what to expect from like sixth graders, right? They're just, it, they're loud and they're boisterous yeah, they're, they're and they're disrespectful. Right. And right. they're just that. Right. When we walked, they were like that in the bus ride and mm -hmm. trying to get them in line or whatever. When we got into the museum and walked the museum and then we had a presentation with a Holocaust survivor <gasps> there, you could have heard a pin drop. Wow. And I remember thinking to myself, these kids need to hear that and they're understanding the gravity of it. They're seeing hard pictures. They're yeah. under, they're hearing hard things. Uh, I, uh, as an aside, I would encourage you if you've never been to the Illinois Holocaust Museum to go, to go check it out. Uh, it's not easy, but for these reasons, it's important. So uh, Aubrey, I think ultimately we don't want to see these things repeat themselves. Yeah. And we always go, those things could never happen again. And then, Little things happen. 
and right. little things happen right. and all of a sudden you're back in that spot. So that's why I think it's important to remember and, and to honor, yeah. even as these people are dying off just of old age now, yeah. it's even that much more important to remember. Right. So good, Brian. I, I want to share one more story. This is actually a pretty delightful one. Another Holocaust survivor, 102 years old. You may have seen this because it was all over the internet. He thought that his entire family was killed in the Holocaust, but apparently there was a brother who survived and he was recently found and reunited with, found by and reunited with a newly discovered nephew. It is another amazing story. Let's go ahead and listen to that. This is one of the last opportunities that, that we'll have to witness something like this. I feel like we're kind of touching a piece of history. Um, this reunion between Eliyahu and his nephew, who came immediately to meet him um, from Russia when he when the uh, revelation was made, happened thanks to the information that, that they found, um, that Eliyahu's grandson found on Yad Vashem's central database of Shoah victims' names. Familia в Израиле. Да. So in case you missed it, because they were speaking in uh, Yiddish, that what they shared at the end of the video is the uncle saying, you have a big family here in Israel, you won't be alone. And the nephew saying, it's all good, it's okay. Both mm. of them crying with the emotion of being united. And, you know, stories like that, they, they absolutely don't make the horrors of the Holocaust. Correct. Okay. Right. There is still something that you go, Oh God, thank you for that little sweet. I mean, he's 102 years old, that little sweet gift of hope and delight at the end of his life, knowing there's still a family member there for him. I, 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 that is so moving to me. Yeah, it is also moving. And I think we can just get so obsessed with our own lives and yeah. everything that's going on yeah. around us that it is super important to remember the hard things. I'll remember yeah. the hard things and to celebrate these, these heartwarming stories at the same time. Yeah. Super important. Super important. That's exactly right. Well, coming up next, we are joined by friend of the show, Catherine McNeil. She's got a brand new book about how we love our neighbors, our strangers, and our enemies. We're excited to be joined by Catherine when we return. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. And we are thrilled to be joined by Catherine McNeil. You may actually recognize that name because Catherine sometimes subs in as a co-host for me or for Brian when the other is uh, gone. So she's already a very good friend of the show. Catherine is also the author of several books, All Shall Be Well, Long Days of Small Things, and a brand new book we are so excited to talk to her about called Fearing Bravely. Risking Love for Our Neighbors, Strangers, and Enemies. Catherine, thanks so much for being here. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Aubrey and Brian. It's great to be with you. Catherine, your new book, Fearing Bravely, it comes out a week from today. Am I a right? It comes out next yes. Tuesday. Very, a week from today. Very exciting. So you can buy it wherever books are sold. You can go ahead and pre-order it if you want to. Um, why don't you talk to us just big picture? What is Fearing Bravely about? Oh, well, how long do you have? <laughs> um, 
So as you can maybe tell from the title, Fearing Bravely, I am wrestling with our fears. Why is it that we're afraid? What is it that concerns us? But then I'm juxtaposing that with what Jesus has asked us to do. And, and there's a lot of things Jesus has asked us to do, but specifically to love our neighbors as we love ourselves, to care for strangers, and even to love and pray for our enemies. And I really am wrestling with the ways that our fears, which are often legitimate and reasonable um, and even even useful and helpful, at no time do I say that fear is a sin or uh, something we should get rid of altogether, but how do our fears interplay with our command from Jesus to be loving? And so that's really what I'm doing throughout the book. How can we fear bravely? How can we acknowledge we are afraid? There are reasons to be afraid, mm-hmm. but yet not keep our eyes there, not not lean into a posture of fear, but be honest about that and then keep our eyes on Jesus and have a posture that Jesus has invited, even commanded his followers to have, which is love for our neighbors even for strangers and even for enemies. Yeah. Yeah. And Catherine, uh, I love the concept of kind of uh, diving into our fears. What is it that people are afraid of right now? What are those main fears that you tackle in the book? You know, I did a lot of research into that. Um, you know, mostly this is what people are identifying for themselves. You know, people will respond to a poll, um, but a, a lot of the th- fears that rose to the surface in the research is um, things happening outside of our control, whether that's people in our town or our government or other countries. Um, people are afraid of immigrants coming into the country. People are afraid of uh, hostile other governments coming and attacking ours. People are afraid of our own government. People are afraid of disease. Obviously, we're in the middle of a pandemic. And so again... It's not that none of these things happen, or we are actually in the middle of a pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, there are dangerous people in the world and in our community. But what happens when we allow those realities to form the way we interact with each other? We actually become the enemies. We actually become the danger. Mm-hmm. And I think Jesus is inviting us to play a different role in the world. And Catherine, um, the subtitle of your book is Risking love for neighbors, strangers, and enemies. Can you unpack why you centered your book around sort of those three categories of people? Yeah. Well, you know, I I take all my cues from Jesus' teaching in this book. Well, um, that's a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> I do a lot of kind of wrestling, exploring what it might look like for us today. But I start with Jesus' command. Um He agrees with his Jewish upbringing that the two most important things, according to God, is to love God with all your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself. And, you know, I think if we just left it at that, we could spend an entire lifetime diligently and earnestly trying to accomplish those two tasks. But Jesus expands that in his teaching um, when he, when he's kind of asked, well, who's my neighbor? You know, clarify, where, where's the boundaries to this? Jesus tells this crazy story. Um, and I, we know it. It's the Good Samaritan story. I'm not going to get into it here. I get into it a lot in the book. Um, but Basically, the bottom line of that story is is that the person that is pleasing God is the one who sees a stranger in need and takes care of him sacrificially um, with his own time, his own money, his own resources, 
in a dangerous space. So Jesus is saying, you know, when, who's your neighbor? It's anyone who's in need, anyone who you see that needs a hand, mm-hmm. even, even if they're strangers. And then later in his teaching, Jesus says, um, you've heard it said, love your neighbor, but I say to you, love your enemy and mm-hmm. even pray for those who are persecuting you. So Jesus just himself keeps expanding this definition of neighbor from something that's still going to be super challenging for me. But we just see as Jesus unpacks that there's no limit to the person that I need to sacrificially love and care for. Um, it's everybody. Yeah. And um, I, I, I appreciate that about Jesus. And I was really challenged in, in wrestling with this because I think a lot of times we work backwards and we say, well, these people in my community or these people in our country, uh, I can't view them as a neighbor or a stranger in need because they're dangerous, because they're trying to harm me or harm my community. Um, to which Jesus says, all right, yeah, okay, so maybe that person is your enemy. Your path is the same. Your assignment is the same. Whether it's a neighbor or a stranger or an enemy, if we're following Jesus, our job is to be loving. Our job is to love. Yeah. And Catherine, what does the bravery part look like here? We talked about the fearing part, but but what does it look like to fear bravely? Yeah, well, that's my attempt to say, again, like I'm not saying the fears aren't legitimate. I'm right. not saying that when we do this, when we follow Jesus, everything's going to be safe. You know, Jesus was literally killed for living the way he's asking his followers to live. And he asked his followers to count the cost, Mm -hmm. to pick up their cross. Um, He was not saying like we often do, you know, follow me and everything will be fine and perfect for you. Jesus was saying, follow me down this kind of dangerous and controversial road, but it's the way of life. It's the way of redemption. Um, And so I think that the question for us is not, you know, what is safe or what, what do I feel comfortable with? The question is, I'm afraid. And if I follow Jesus, that doesn't mean everything's going to be safe, but God will give me the courage and the joy that I need to keep going. And we wind up with God's help, fearing bravely. Mm, That's good. And Catherine, let me ask you a quick question about a side project. We're excited to have you join us again to continue talking about your new book, Fearing Bravely. But I know you've been working on a Bible study for Women of Welcome. Can you briefly tell our listeners about that? Yeah, Women of Welcome is a really great ministry. It's part of it's part of World Relief, and um, they are engaging women throughout our country to really explore what Jesus says about welcoming strangers, um, which the Bible goes into quite a lot of detail about. And so I was honored to work with them on a Bible study. It actually also releases a week from today. And this Bible study is a free download on the Women of Welcome's website. So I definitely encourage you to look it up. Very exciting. Well, we are thrilled to be joined by Catherine McNeil, author of a brand new book that comes out next Tuesday, Fearing Bravely, Risking Love for Our Neighbors, Strangers, and Enemies. Uh, A question that I have is, what do you hope will really resonate with your readers when they're done? So they've read the book, they've put it away. This is the thing that is sticking with them. Yeah, uh, that's a great question. You know, I 
These conversations about what it looks like to be in the world as a Christian um, can have a lot of political overtones, but I primarily write spiritual formation. So I'm looking at this from a discipleship lens. Um, what does it mean to think like a Christian? What does it mean to talk like a Christian? What does it mean to be in a community together of, of Christ followers? Um, so I think what I'd really love the outcome of this book to be are, are groups of people gathering together to say, you know, what does Jesus ask us to do related to our fears? How does God invite us to live lives of active love, even if it costs us a lot? Um, what does that look like regarding our neighbors? How do we talk differently because of Jesus' commandment about strangers? How do we posture our lives around enemies? I think I would just love, because I don't have the answers for every individual community or every individual church or Christian, but I would love for us to change the conversation and really be intentional to say, you know, there is this discrepancy between the way we're talking and the way we're thinking and what Jesus has asked us to do and, and the way Jesus has asked us to be in the world. Yeah. Yeah. And Catherine, I'm sure anytime you write a book, it comes out of not just personal um, interest, but also experience. So I wonder if you have any stories that how you've seen this play out in your own life, maybe how you've grown or how you've struggled in what you're talking about. Tell us about how you've seen this in your own life. Oh, wow. Well, (laughs) there there are so many ways, so many directions I could go there. Um, But for now, I'll share that I live in a community that is primarily first or second generation immigrants. And uh, I can tell you for sure that the rhetoric that I hear on the radio, on television, even from the pulpit a lot of times, is very different from the reality of of actually knowing and being friends and neighbors um, with these newcomers to our country. And uh, I just would love for more American citizens to sit down over coffee um, with with an immigrant or a refugee or a, a stranger of any kind in that sense and hear their story, hear their even story of faith and realize that there is so much that we can gain in in following Mm. jesus commands it's not even that we are sacrificing so much to love the people in our community because when we take that little step uh we we form relationships and we suddenly find that we are gaining from those Mm. relationships and you know that's life-changing yeah that's really good Catherine. and uh, Catherine, i I know you said earlier that you don't feel like you can say you know what all churches in all places should do but if you are sitting down with a pastor just to encourage them on like, hey, I, you know, I, th- this pastor is coming to you and saying, look, I want to help my people welcome the stranger more than they are. I want to help people fear bravely instead of fearing in a way that's moving towards hate. What words of wisdom would you give to that church leader trying to guide their people? Oh, well, <laughs> I do. Besides just like, here, read my book. Yes. Uh, my publisher has put together a really incredible uh, facilitator's guide and an entire web page um, that you can find on the NAV Press page for Fearing Bravely with all kinds of resources for pastors or or uh, conversation leaders um, that want to go deeper with this topic in their church. So very practically, I would definitely point them there. Um, 
but also in at the end of every section, but the book is broken into four sections. The first looks at love and fear, the second neighbors, the third strangers, the fourth enemies. And at the end of every section, I do give a lot of very practical discussion questions, even practical practices um, that we can try out either on our own or with a group. And so I think my recommendation to the pastor would be just really dig in, like, Form a group together and 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 ask these questions and mm. try try these practices and see what is birthed from there. Mm. Um, because again, at minimum, we need to change the way we talk about these people that God loves. Are they are our neighbors? They are maybe strangers. Some of them are even our enemies. But in any case, our job as Christians, as Christ followers, is to have a posture of love mm. and of and of welcome and to seek the peace and the prosperity of our communities, um, even even when they're hostile towards us. Yeah. Catherine, you just brought up something interesting there, because we often on the show, you've been on the show many times, we talk about kind of the combative world we live in, social media and this, that, but there are things to disagree about, right? We don't Absolutely. always agree with other people. We don't, and there are times to kind of stand up. How do we love our neighbor as you're talking about in this book? How do we kind of model Jesus even when we vehemently disagree with someone? How could Christians do that better? Well, you know, Jesus did a lot of that and uh, he was he was very combative and he was so combative. In fact, he was arrested and killed. So I don't I don't think there's a call here necessarily for us to sort of just be doormats and let people just take advantage of us. Um, But. I think rhetorically speaking, we've pretty far gone off the other side of the pendulum. Um, that I doubt was a majorly mixed metaphor. I, I put like three or four metaphors in there. I hope my, I hope my editor isn't listening. But, um, you know, at least we can be uh, welcoming to each other. You know, I, the people who are my literal neighbors, I'm looking at their houses right now, um, disagree with me on almost everything. But... Mm. Can I have them over for coffee? You know, can I say hello to them in the yard? Can I can I care about their cancer journeys and mm. can I listen to their stories? You know, I think we do so much talking, so much defending our own positions that we don't do a whole lot of listening and um we just need some compassion. Mm. That's good, Catherine. Catherine, where can our listeners find the new book and where can they learn more about you and all you're doing? Well, my website is a great place to start, katherinemcneil.com. Um, there you'll find links to all three of my books as well as my social media sites. But I'm Catherine McNeil at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as well. And that is com. Catherine, thanks so much for being here with us today. Oh, it's so good. We've loved talking with Catherine McNeil about her brand new book, Fearing Bravely, Risking Love for Our Neighbors, Strangers, and Enemies. You can pre-order a copy today at Amazon or at navpress.com. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm, and it's the end of the show. The end of every show, we love to give you something either challenging or inspiring or something to put on a smile on your face. And, you know, we're we're officially in February, so we are full on into 2022. I still think this is a good start of the new year conversation that that we can have about how we grow in our intimacy with God. 
this year. And, um, you know, there are some simple ways that we'll unpack here in just a little bit. We hope to inspire you with those. But Brian, if you are preaching a sermon on intimacy with God, what are some of the the things that you tell your parishioners at Four Corners Church about? Yeah, I, I wouldn't want to jump immediately to how do you grow in that. And I know that's what yes, this article that we're going to yeah. look at is, but I, I would want to define it a little bit. And that's what I'd love to hear from you as well. Like, what are we even talking about, right? Mm. Like, uh, for some misguided people, they hear intimacy with God and they immediately, that sounds feminine, right? That sounds mm. relational. That sounds like we're having this kind of touchy-feely conversations. And that's not what it means. But there's also this idea that what it implies is that there's a relationship. There's a relationship that um, to which when work is put in, there is a closeness, there is a connection. And I yeah. think that's hard for a lot of us to get our minds around when it comes to God. Yeah. Like, wait, what do you, what do you mean there can be an intimacy? I, I, there, I, I understand obedience. I understand devotion. But what do we mean by intimacy? I wonder how you would answer that. How would you answer to people if they were like, Aubrey, help me even understand that concept, that phrase of quote unquote intimacy with God? Yeah, I mean, I think I would I would just ask, you know, who are you in intimate relationship with in, in your actual life and what does that look like? It's probably your spouse, probably your very best friends, um, the people that know you the best, that you know the best, that you spend the time with. Uh, the most that you feel a sense of closeness to a sense mm -hmm, of loyalty mm -hmm. to and a sense of just like you can be yourself with them they can be their self with you and the wildest like miraculous most amazing part of the gospel is that we can have that same intimacy with the creator of the universe mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. of jesus christ and i i think sometimes we we don't stop and go whoa the fact that the God who made us actually wants to know us and wants to be known by us is wild and mm. miraculous and amazing and incredible. And scripture promises that when we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. And so I think I would just describe intimacy like that, like the closest, closest friendship that you don't doubt, you don't worry about because they know you intimately and still love you and you know them intimately and you still love them. And, I, you know, why would you not want that with exactly with God of all people? You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and I, of course, there's some fear that gets in the way of that. There's our own shame that that stops us. There's our lies about our worth and our value. But what we can remember is because Jesus gave everything for us, we can have this beautiful relationship with God without fear, without shame. That's and right. so I, you know, I, it's a beautiful, miraculous invitation. So, um, Brian, you mentioned an article, one of the websites that I, you actually introduced me to this website. I, I tend did. to go there a lot now, churchleaders.com. It's not just for church leaders, but what I love about churchleaders.com is they tend to have practical steps and lists. And as anyone who listens to the common good know, you and I love a good list. Mm. And um, so they list, they move on from talking about what intimacy with God is to ways we can actually begin pursuing intimacy with God. And some of these might be uh, refreshers for you, but I think every single one of us need refreshers to remind us of how we can pursue that beautiful intimacy with the Lord. So the first one, Brian, that they mentioned is worship. Mm -hmm. And the article quotes John 4, 24, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And 
what they're reminding us is that more than just singing a song, worship is a way that we respond to God who loves us. And I, I would also add, I think worship helps us align our will to God's. And I think worship is a way where we just remind ourselves of it's, it's like a way to gospel ourselves as we mm. sing worship songs, that we listen to the lyrics, we remember who God is and we sort of remind our souls um, to be at rest and to worship the God who loves us. And in that way, it's both for us and to worship God, honestly. That's right. That's right. Yeah. It is where we get it wrong because of terminology that, okay, so I have to just sing. That's, mm-hmm. Singing is part of it, right? Yeah. Singing in church, singing in the car, or whatever else it might be. But it's that Romans 12, offer our bodies as living sacrifices. Mm-hmm. This is our reasonable act of worship. Aubrey, something else came to mind, and then I'll give the next one here. This idea of having a relationship with God caused problems in biblical times, caused mm. problems with Jesus, right? Because the right. Pharisees, it was right. like, nope, this is about if I keep X, Y, and Z, if I keep these rules and the better I keep them, the more God accepts me and the better, you know, my self-righteousness and all of this stuff. And Jesus came preaching relationship. Jesus yeah. came preaching intimacy. Yeah. Uh, and it was one of the things that got him killed. <laughs> it was one of those Good things point. Good point. that that pushed back. And so if you have trouble with that, just know that this trouble with this idea, the God of the universe wants to be in relationship with us. The trouble with that goes a long way back. Yeah, that's such a good reminder, right? It's that's a great. long way back. And, you know, these are not breaking necessarily new ground. Like you said, number one, he gave us worship. The other one he gives, another one he gives is scripture. Yeah. It says, Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. And he who believes in me shall never thirst. Mm-hmm. That God gave us a clear picture of what he's like. And he put it all down in a book and that we can use to, uh, that we can use to learn and remind ourselves of nature. Basically, that as Christians, we have to be people of his word. God reveals himself in all sorts of different ways, right? And we can debate those things about, does he still do signs and wonders and miracles and all that stuff? I believe he does. Mm -hmm. But also I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, one way that God, a primary way that he has revealed himself is in scripture. Yes. And so how do we get to know him? How do we grow in closeness? How does God speak to us? One of the primary ways, maybe the primary way is his word. And so if we are people not of the word, then that is going to have a ripple down effect. So these are not like if you've been in church, you know the answers, scripture, worship, but these are hard to live out. Yeah, they are. Speaking of the next one is, it's going to sound really simple, prayer. Mm -hmm. This morning, I was actually reading something in a book that was saying that we are a lot of us more willing to uh, sign up to teach in a Sunday school class than we are to spend time in prayer because mm. that feels easier and more tangible, right? But thinking about prayer as a way of communicating with God for some reason can feel really tricky, right? Mm-hmm. And we don't mm-hmm. know when to pray. And sometimes we fall asleep when we're praying. And what do we pray? And all, you know, all of those things can feel really, really complicated. But if we just think of prayer as a conversation with God, uh, you can follow Jesus's own prayer, or you can uh, read prayers in scripture, or just talk to God like your friend. That can um, remind you that God is living and active in your life and um, be part of how you grow in that intimacy because we grow in intimacy by connecting and talking and uh, being with the person that we want to grow with, right? And so prayer is one of those gifts that God has given us to grow in our relationship with him. Do you want to share the last one, Brian? Yeah, the last one tends to go with prayer, but it's journaling. And not all of us are journalers, but it says basically – 
journaling allows us to write down our thoughts. It allows us to memorize scripture. It's important to reflect. It allows time to reflect on God's faithfulness. So even if you're not a writer and a journaler, where are you going to reflect on the past of what God has done, who he has been, uh, his faithfulness to us? And that then grows our connection and our intimacy with him. So journaling is a great way to do it. But if not, that doesn't mean I don't ever have to reflect. How are you getting into the habit of reflecting upon who Mm -hmm. God is and what he has done throughout history? but also in your life. That's good. That's really good. So scripture, worship, prayer, journaling, or some type of reflection. Those are some basic ways you can begin growing in your intimacy with God. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. We'll be back again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian Fromm, I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.